Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and everything in between. Once again, I have to apologize for being late with this episode. Uh, all last week, I basically had COVID, I think. Not 100% sure. The test came back negative, but apparently those tests don't really show you if you have the Omicron variant. They're very hit or miss. Had all the symptoms, sore throat, cough, achy, just felt like shit. Uh, and I couldn't really speak, so speaking is kind of an integral part of doing a podcast. You might notice my voice cracking a little bit here or cutting in and out. I'll do my best to get rid of it, but sometimes it's just going to stick. So while I try to struggle through this this week, uh, we're going to take a look at Charles Walton, part two. Last week we ended on what Alfred Potter thought of the events in question. And if you don't remember what happened, well, you can go back and listen to last week's episode, or you can just stay tuned for the recap, which is coming up right now. So Alfred Potter was murdered in a field very brutally with a pitchfork and a hack knife, which I believe is... The crescent moon-shaped blade that used trim hedges and trees and stuff like that. It's a very nasty-looking piece of equipment. It was never solved, and there were some suspects, and we're going to go over those suspects today. So, without further ado, this is the conclusion to Charles Walton. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Naturally, the police made quite a few inquiries during this time. And this time, if you don't remember, was on February 14th, 1945. And that was the day Charles Walton was murdered. So naturally, the first suspect that comes to mind is his boss. He was the last one to see Charles alive. And, well, his accounts are a little bit strange, to say the least. That guy's name was Alfred Potter. You may remember me going over his accounts last episode, but we're going to go into more detail in just a little bit. But first, first, we're going to look at some other inquiries before we get into the big boys, such as Alfred Potter and a mystery woman. So we'll find out soon enough. Edith, who was Charles's niece slash adopted daughter, claimed that Potter stated the following as they made their way to Hillground with Harry Beasley on the day of the murder. Quote, I have to do the milking on a Wednesday. I came to the field to cut some hay at 12 o'clock and saw your uncle at his work, end quote. Edith further stated that she had never heard Charles say he had ever lent anyone money and she had not seen any IOUs. But subsequent inquiries of the Midland Bank revealed that Walton had deposited 227 pounds and 10 pence in June of 1930, but that by 1939 he had dwindled it down to just 11 pounds, 11 cents, or pence. I think it's pence. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Walton had made numerous withdrawals during the intervening years, but never more than 10 pounds or so at a time. Fabian, one of the investigators, also revealed that Walton's best friend was 72-year-old George Higgins. That's a great middle English name there. Of Fairview Lower Quinton. Although the pair had not seen each other since the previous Christmas. That's alright, I haven't seen some of my friends for years. Thanks, COVID. Higgins was employed by Mr. Valander of Upper Quinton, and at the time of the murder had been working in a barn just 300 yards away from Walton. Fabian suspected that Higgins could have made his way across the field unseen and easily killed Walton. However, he doubted that the old man would have had the strength to mount such an attack, 
or really have any kind of motive. It was just kind of a thing of opportunity, and they quickly dismissed that. Harry Beasley was also interviewed, and if you remember, he was one of the three people who originally found Charles's body, and he told the police that he was employed by Harry Bell of Henny's Farm in the village. He said that, quote, Potter had a reputation as a decent man to work for. On the night of February 14th, he recalled Potter saying of Walton, quote, I saw him at work at 12.15, end quote. Beasley also confirmed that Edith Walton had been going out with one Edgar Good for some years. Although Good was later eliminated from the police inquiries, Beasley said that he was confident that Potter realized Walton was dead from the moment he saw Walton's body. I wonder if the real transcripts of these interviews are out there somewhere. I would like to get my hands on them, but I don't think they are. You know, I, I haven't looked, but I just have a feeling. As Mr. Flanders would say, I've tried nothing, and I'm all out of ideas. Anyway, let's continue on with this. The police took statements from two other employees of Potter. William George Died and George Purnell. Both confirmed that from time to time, Potter had experienced difficulties paying their wages, which is never good. Joseph Stanley also confirmed that Potter had assisted him with the castration of two calves on the morning of February 14th, the murder day, and that they had subsequently visited the Cottage Arms where Potter had drunk two glasses of Guinness between 11.45 a.m. and noon. Two glasses of Guinness? In 15 minutes? Dude was a fucking tank. Jesus. That's like two meals. Before noon. Two meals of alcohol. Yikes. Maybe he was just drunk hammered and killed the guy and didn't even know he did it and then went back and was like, hey, I'm done taking a pee. Jeez. Now, statements were taken from over 500 residents of Laura Quinton. Some, even as young as 11, were questioned, as well as other individuals who were in and around the area on February 14th. A detailed search of the area and surrounding area of the murder scene was undertaken with the help of the Royal Engineers using mine detectors in an attempt to find Walton's pocket watch or some other clue, but there was nothing to be found. Eventually, Fabian and Webb returned to London while Detective Superintendent Alec Spooner continued to search for the murderer. The murder so fascinated Spooner that it is claimed he continued to return to the village long after the rest of the world had concluded that the perpetrator would never be found. There were reports that Walton's pocket watch was found in the outhouse of his cottage in 1960, despite an extensive search by police at the time of the murder. So, either somebody went back and put it there, Edith, looking at you, Edith, although I'm not sure she would have been alive. Yeah, she should have still been a kicking around in 1960. Or somebody went back and put it there, whoever the murderer was. Or they just missed it, and he forgot it there that morning, and it sat there for 15 years. Hard to say. But let's look at some of the main suspects, shall we? Of course, Alfred Potter is on this list. He was the last one to see him alive. He was an employer and apparently not the greatest one in terms of paying people in general. So let's just go over who Alfred was before we get into some of the stuff that makes him a little suspicious to most people. Now, Alfred Potter was 40 years old at the time of the murder and managed the Furs, which is a farm for L.L. Potter & Co., which is a company owned by his father. Detective Fabian concluded that Alfred Potter was likely the killer of Charles Walton, although that is an unsubstantiated claim, but, uh, you know, he's kind of my favorite for this too, but he's got some alibis. It's hard to say. So let's go over some point notes here. Potter's behavior on the night of the murder did not appear to be that of an innocent man. 
When Constable Lamanzi arrived at 7.05 p.m., he noted that Potter seemed very upset. He was shivering and complained of being cold. Looking back, I think that Potter appeared to be more worried than one would have expected him to be. That's a quote from Mr. Lamanzi. After all, Lamanzi reasoned that Potter was used to slaughtering animals and might have been less moved by the murder scene than other men. Lamancy was also surprised when Potter said he was going home before the Stratford police showed up. He said, quote, His complaint of feeling cold I considered a strange excuse from one who is used to attending to animals at all hours and all kinds of weather, especially as the murdered man was his own employee and he had been murdered in his own land. In fact, the Stratford police turned up just as Potter was leaving. So let's dissect that just a little bit. Obviously, it sounds like the man was in shock. Being cold, shivering for no reason, those are some symptoms of shock. But were they shocked because his friend slash employee had been murdered on his watch or because he was the murderer? Now, just because you slaughter animals for a living doesn't mean you can slaughter a human. They're different creatures, they're different beasts. We have a strange connection to people that, you know, we feel bad when we kill them. And we don't necessarily feel bad when we kill, say, a cow or a sheep. So just because he's a animal slaughterer doesn't mean he can comfortably kill a human or even see a human be murdered or see a dead body. Remember, seeing a dead body is probably very different than seeing the dead body of a friend or somebody you knew. So the shock set in and he didn't know what to do and yeah, it's basically that. However, him wanting to leave before the Stratford police showed up is a different story. Now, maybe he just didn't want to answer any questions pertaining to the murder itself. Maybe he was doing something else illegal on the land. Maybe he was afraid that the police would find out he wasn't paying his employees on time. There's a number of reasons why he would want to leave. Maybe he was just, again, in shock and didn't really understand the situation at hand and just wanted to go home to his wife. All those are just as likely as him being a murderer. But let's continue on with some more reasons why people think Alfred Potter was indeed the murderer. On February 17th, Potter said he would have gone over to see Walton at Hillground on February 14th were it not for the fact that he had a heifer in a ditch nearby that needed attending to. He claimed that he had gone straight home, arriving there around 12.40pm and then went to attend to the heifer. However, the heifer was found to have drowned in Doomsday Ditch on February 13th. Doomsday Ditch? Who the fuck named that? And why? I gotta do an episode on Doomsday fucking Ditch. But the cow did die a day before February 14th, so, hmm, a little bit of contradictory action going on in this little story of Mr. Potter here. But perhaps he was telling the truth, as the cow was removed from the ditch on February 14th, but not until 3.30pm, well after he said he would have gone to remove said heifer from said ditch, said doomsday ditch. In another contradictory action, Potter's statement about the heifer was contradicted by his statement on February 23rd that he had gone home, read the paper, and then helped Charles Bachelor to pulp some mangolds. Fabian commented that Potter was undoubtedly lying about his actions at the critical time, but the reasons for these lies can, for the present, only be a matter of conjecture. Those are the words of Mr. Fabian himself. So now we're going to start seeing why Fabian really favored Potter as the murderer. Fabian's cynicism about Potter's activities between noon and 1240 was increased by the fact that he had variously 
stated he had seen Walton working at a distance at around 12.10, 12.15, and 12 p.m., ultimately telling the inquest that he had seen someone, quote-unquote someone, stationary at 12.30. Fabian commented, quote, Thus we have Potter's story gradually changing from seeing Charles working at hedge cutting at 12.10 to seeing a man standing stationary in a field at 12.30. Potter's statement about seeing Walton working at invariably said that he was in a shirt sleeves. However, when his body was found, he was wearing a jacket, and underneath his jacket, he was wearing a shirt, but the sleeves were cut off above the elbow. Thus, Potter could not have seen him in his long sleeve shirt. In Fabian's view, even if Potter had merely seen Walton with his jacket off, he said, quote, it seems improbable he would have worked in shirt sleeves at 12.20 and then put his jacket on unless he decided to go home. It's a fair point. On February 20th, Potter said he'd previously mentioned to the police that he'd handled the murder weapons like a good boy would, and he did that because Mr. Beasley, the person with him, told him to do it. Essentially touch it. Just touch it. Do it. Why not just touch it? Just a murder weapon. However, this was the first time he had made such a claim to the police, and Beasley strongly refuted any question that he had asked Potter to make sure that Walton was dead. Beasley said it was painfully obvious that he was dead, and that Potter did not touch the weapons in his presence. Fabian's comments was that Potter produced this explanation only when Lamancy broached the question of fingerprints on February 20th. He considered that Potter had, quote, gone to great pains to explain away any of his fingerprints, which might have been found on the weapon, end quote, in the event no prints were found. So it does sound like he was trying to cover his ass. He knew he touched those murder weapons, be it during the murder or after the murder or before the murder. He knew his fingerprints would be there, but they weren't. So why would he think his fingerprints were on there if nothing was on there? That is a very... Very strange assumption to make. At this point, to me, it does indeed sound like Alfred Potter at least thinks he is under suspicion and he's trying to cover all of his bases. He has alibis, he has excuses, and he has reasons for all of his actions and any actions that may or may not even have occurred. But let's just continue on with what some of these notes say about Potter's activity and behavior during that time. Potter's suggestion that he might occasionally pay Walton for hours he had not worked was disproved by an examination of the sums he had intended for wages from L.L. Potter and Co., and those that he had paid to Walton. What Potter was really doing was claiming more than he needed to pay his employee, and then pocketing that difference, who was committing fraud, essentially. Fabian's comment was that Potter, by his own admission, is guilty of claiming more wages than were due, and there is no doubt that he is making a good thing out of Walton's employment by him. So remember earlier when I said that he might have been hiding something else and was afraid of getting caught? And that's why he went into shock and avoided the Stratford police? Well, like I said, had something to do with finances. And sure enough, it has something to do with finances. But was that the reason? I don't know. I don't know. He was never convicted of this murder, so it's hard to say for sure. Just a few more points to go over here before we move on to the next suspect. After Fabian and Webb had returned to London, the police constable who had relieved Lamancy and stood guard over the murder scene reported that Potter had returned to Hillground soon after first light on February 15th. 
the policeman had warned Potter away from the actual site of the murderer. Potter had exchanged a few pleasantries about the coldness of the weather, given the constable a player's cigarette, and then left. This revelation brought Fabian away back for another interview with Potter and some searching questions about why he had not told them earlier about visiting the scene. However, this interview does not seem to have advanced the case any further, although it was noted that, quote, happy bachelor and another employee of Potter's had both resigned since the murder. Fabian believed both had possibly realized the nature of the men for whom they worked and decided, hey, that's enough, I don't want to get murdered. He also wondered if Bachelor had compromised himself by stating that he had seen Potter at 12.40 p.m. Maybe it was a dual murder. Maybe it was Bachelor and Potter together, and he just kind of fucked up the timing with his alibi. The trousers that Potter had worn on February 14th were described as being made from Bedford cord. There are two marks on the front that Professor Webster believed were bloodstains. However, he reported that they had been cleaned too thoroughly for any positive analysis. Now, like any good investigation, you want to try to map out as best you can the movements and motives of your main suspect. And in this case, that's Alfred Potter. Now, the key for the police was establishing Potter's movements between 12 noon when he parted company from Joseph Stanley at the Cottage Arms and 1240 when Charles Bachelor said he saw him at the Furs. Despite Potter changing his story in various ways, Fabian concluded that there were, quote, no real evidence to convict him or even connect him to the murder itself and no reasonable motive can be found for him committing it. Fabian found out there was no evidence that Potter was violent or that he and Walton had ever quarreled. He described Potter as morose and sullen at his interviews, although even when closely interrogated, he never lost his temper. He was civil throughout the whole shebang. He wrote that Potter was unkempt and on the surface very dull-witted, although he said, quote, I am convinced he is far from that. Indeed, Fabian believed Potter to be a man of considerable strength and an extremely cunning individual. Some believe that maybe Potter killed him over money as Walton might have lent him some money and then never repaid him and then there was a fight and then, you know, Potter being the younger, stronger man killed him. However... There's no proof that that was ever the case. So if Alfred Potter was the main suspect, and I agree with most of what everything was said here, he is favored to be the guy who killed him. Who else could possibly be there? This seemed like a very small town, Lower Quinton, in the 40s, probably not the biggest place in the world. But there was another person of interest. However, this person was long dead. Yeah, suspicious, right? Hmm. And Tennant was a resident of Long Compton, 15 miles from Lower Quinton, and was murdered at the age of 80 on September 15, 1875, at about 8 o'clock in the evening. Aunt Tennant had left her house to buy a loaf of bread and was never seen again. On her way back, she met some farm workers returning from harvesting in the fields. One of the group was a local man, James Hayward, who had known Anne's family for years. Haywood was simple-minded and was seen as something akin to a village idiot. It is known that he had also been drinking cider. Dun, dun, dun. Without warning, he attacked Anne Tennant with a pitchfork, stabbing her in the legs and head. A local farmer named Taylor heard the commotion and ran to Anne's aid. He restrained Haywood until the constable arrived. Anne was taken to her daughter's house but died of her injuries at around 11.15 that night. How do you get stabbed in the head and live for like another three hours? 
Damn, tough, tough woman. They really did make him different back in the day. I get stabbed in the foot and I'd probably be like, no, kill me now. I need to die. Anywho, Haywood claimed that Anne was a witch. Uh, witch? So I told you there'd be some witchcraft stuff in this. And that there were other witches in the village whom he intended to deal with in the same way. Although committed to trial for murder, he was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity and spent the rest of his life in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. I don't even know if you can call people lunatics anymore. And that was an official designation back in the 1800s. He's recorded as dying at the age of 59. So I guess he didn't finish his, um, whatever, what do you want to call that? His mission? Never finished his mission? That's probably what he called it. Psycho. On February 13th, 1954, the eve of the ninth anniversary of Walton's murder, the Daily Mirror, that wonderful piece of writing, revisited the killing of Ann Tennant and alleged similarities between that and the event of Walton's murder. The report stated that, quote, the police have found one other link between the killings, but I am pledged not to reveal it. How convenient, Mr. Tabloid Writer. One possible explanation was that the police had discovered that Charles Walton and Ann Tennant were related, but that is just conjecture. We don't know for sure. Charles Walton did have a first cousin twice removed named John Hayes, and in December of 1867, John Hayes married Sarah Cook, whose first cousin once removed was Elizabeth Clifton, the wife of Joseph Tennant and Tennant's eldest son. Again, that's all 100% conjecture. We don't know for sure, but that is a fun, 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 fun thing to look at. I don't know what twice removed cousin means. Is that like your cousin's kids? I don't know. I don't I'm trying to think about it. My brain hurts trying to think about it. Anyway, that is some loose connection at fucking best, but I love it. I love it. This is like seven murder board with all the fucking strings, the red strings tied around thumbtacks going like this guy's this and he's connected to this guy. And it's, that's the kind of level of bullshit I love to see in these sort of investigations. Alternatively, the police may have believed that there was a closer connection. Charles Walton's great grandparents were Thomas Walton and Ann Smith. Ann Smith was Ann Tennant's maiden name, and she was born in 1794. It is feasible that it was she who married Thomas Walton on January 2nd, 1812, in Ebrigton, Ebrigton, Ebrington, Gloucestershire. How can I say Gloucestershire fine, but I can't say Ebrigton, whatever, when she would have been about 17 or 18 years old. She could have given birth to William Walton, the victim's grandfather, in 1814, and assuming that her husband subsequently died, could have married John Tennant in April of 1819 in Long Compton. In other words, if you look at this crazy spider web of bullshit long enough, it is possible that Ann Tennant was actually Charles Walton's great-grandmother. But we don't know. Nobody knows. Because I don't know if genealogy really goes back that far. I know we have 23andMe where you can look at yourself and then it tells you like people from years and years and years ago. But this is all very weird. But I love it. I love it. Now, I promised you witchcraft, and I promise it wasn't just the mention of Ann Tennant possibly being a witch way back in the 1800s. No, we're going to go over some more modern witchcraft. Modern for the time, in 1945, that is. The two reports that Fabian wrote on the case in 1945 and are still preserved on police file make no mention of witchcraft, ritualistic killing, black dogs, Natterjack toads or blood sacrifices. However, 25 years later, he wrote the following. 
I advise anybody who is tempted at the time to venture into black magic, witchcraft, shamanism, call it what you will, to remember Charles Walton and to think of his death, which was clearly the ghastly climax of a pagan rite. There's no stronger argument for keeping as far away as possible from the villains and their swords, incense and mumbo jumbo. It is prudence on which your future peace of mind and even your life could depend. It has been claimed that Fabian was acquainted with two pieces of local history. The first related to the murder of Anne Tennant by James Haywood on the grounds that she was a witch. In many accounts, it has been erroneously claimed that Anne was pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and slashed with a billhook. Additionally, Detective Superintendent Alec Spooner, head of Warwickshire CID, is said to have drawn Fabian's attention to a 1929 book entitled Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land, written by the Reverend James Harvey Bloom, rector of White Church, Warwickshire, and father of author Ursula Bloom. It included the story of how in 1885 a young plowboy named Charles Walton met a phantom black dog on his way home from work after several nights in succession. On the last occasion, the dog had been accompanied by a headless woman. That night, Walton heard that his sister had died. Amongst the theories and rumors surrounding the case in subsequent years are the following. It was claimed that locals believed that Walton was a witch whose powers were feared by some villagers. He was a secluded loner who didn't really have many friends. And that's kind of witchy if you ask me. Or at least perceived to be witchy, especially back in the day. It was claimed that he could cast the evil eye and keep the natterjack toads as pets and use them to, quote, blast the crops and livestock of local farmers. Two examples cited were the failure of the 1944 harvest and the death of Potter's heifer on February 13th. It was claimed that this alleged witchcraft led him to be murdered in a ritualistic manner which involved his blood soaking into the ground to, quote, replenish the soil's fertility. However, he was killed by a hedge and not near crops. So, I think the, the soil fertility thing is a little different depending on what's growing there. But I'll let them have their theory for now. Local folklore held that a phantom black dog roamed the area and it was a harbinger of death. It was claimed that soon after Walton's murder, a black dog was found hanging from a tree close to the murder scene. However, again, that's just a rumor. Fabian wrote that he encountered a black dog while walking home at dusk on Meon Hill. Again, rumor. The story he related was that the dog ran past him and shortly afterwards he met a local boy walking in the same direction. He asked the boy if he was looking for his dog, but when Fabian mentioned the animal's color, the boy turned deathly pale and fled in the opposite direction. God, these urban legends are fucking great. Love them. Love them. None of these stories are reported in any official sense. They're just hearsay, but they're fun. And that's what this podcast is all about, having some fun. Now let's just get on to some myths about this case and the subsequent case featuring Anne Tennant. There were original claims that Anne was pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and or slash with a billhook and they're of pure invention. They never happened. She was indeed attacked in the view of several witnesses and the only similarity with Walton's murder was the fact that a pitchfork was used in both instances because they were both committed by either farmhands or near a farm, or something that had a pitchfork nearby. Walton was working with a pitchfork, and presumably, Haywood 
had a pitchfork in his hand because he was a farmhand and he was walking home from work. The other obvious myth here was that Walton was the boy in the story with the black dog. There is no evidence that Charles Walton mentioned in Bloom's book was ever the same one that was murdered. The latter had three older sisters and two younger brothers. If the Charles Walton in the story was subsequently the murder victim, he would have needed to have a sister who had died during 1885. However, his sisters Marianne and Martha Walton both married in 1891 and lived for some years thereafter, while Harriet, in reality Charles's half-sister, was still alive in 1901. Subsequently, the story must have related to another Charles Walton, unless Emma, his mother, gave birth to a fourth daughter between April 1881 and 1885, but that's unlikely. The 1841 census taken on June 7th, 1841 conveniently records Charles's mother as being just nine months old, implying that she was born around August or September of 1840. In April of 1881, she would have been almost 41 years old without having given birth, at least to a living child, for some five or six years anyway. It is highly unlikely that she did so during the next five years, especially since a detailed study of the birth, marriage, and death records held by the Office of National Statistics has failed to produce any likely Walton births or deaths being registered in the Shipston or Stratford-upon-Avon areas during that period. Here's a fun myth that Walton was murdered close to a druid circle in a druidical ceremony. Fabian stated in the Fabian of the Yard, that one of the most memorable murder cases was the village of Lower Quinton near the Stone Druid Circle of the Whispering Knights. The Whispering Knights. There had been a man killed by a reproduction of a druidical ceremony on St. Valentine's Eve. Now, Gerald B. Gardner stated in his book, The Meaning of Witchcraft, quote, the Whispering Knights are not a circle, they are not druidical, and they are about 12 miles away as the crow flies from Lower Quinton. Nor was Charles Walton killed on St. Valentine's Eve. And as no one knows for certain just when the druid's ceremonies were, it is impossible to say that his death was a reproduction of one. Apart from these details, the description is accurate. So, yeah. Basically, everything he said was wrong except for the fact that he was murdered. Great. Great, that's a great way to start a myth. The last myth I'm going to mention here is that Fabian was met with a wall of silence over the crime. The police took numerous statements from individuals and while Fabian was happy in later years to suggest that he had, quote, met a wall of silence, most would say that 1945 was that the natives of Upper and Lower Quinton and the surrounding districts are of a secretive disposition and they do not take easily to strangers. However, the truth may be that no one had seen or heard anything and therefore had nothing to tell. I'm gonna call bullshit on that one and say that they are an entire town of witches and witch hunters constantly at war, kinda like the Underworld movies with Kate Beckinsale where she's the vampire and they are always at war with the werewolves. Yet, they kinda live side by side sort of thing. Let's go with that. that this town is full of witchcraft and witch hunters and that's why they're so secretive. The murder of Charles Walton was never meant to get out. Hmm. It was never meant to get out. And the constable on duty, maybe he was new, and he didn't know better not to call Scotland Yard at the time. Ah, I just came up with a new theory myth. Throw it in with the research. There we go. Anyway, that's going to do it for me this week. I really hope you do enjoy this episode. 
And I do apologize if I sound like shit because I am sick-ish. Just getting over it. Should be better by the end of the week. And on Friday, we'll have a new episode. And hopefully I won't sound like death. So there's that. Anyway, my name is Casey and this is the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what we heard, please feel free to leave a rating on Spotify. You can leave a five-star rating on there. And if you do, message me somewhere and I'll give you a shout-out. You can still leave reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts as well. But I don't think anybody really uses that anymore. But if you want to, feel free to. You'll still get that shout-out. And I'll read any five-star reviews out on the show as well. Follow me on social media at Ominous Origins Pod on Instagram. On Twitter at Horror Shots Prod is in production or on Facebook at Horror Shots. So until next time. <laughs>